0: Matt Boudreaux.
1: Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 277 you were listening to. My guest today is Rafa Sardina. Rafa is originally from Spain, now currently lives in Los Angeles, and has worked with an amazing, amazing array of people. We're talking about, let me just start. Here we go. Stevie Wonder, Lady Gaga. Harry Connick Jr., Mariah Carey, Shakira, Dr. Dre, Soul Coughing, Sheryl Crow, Michael Buble. There is so many here that I could spend the whole podcast reading this uh, list of people that he has worked with. It's pretty amazing. And not only that, he is just such a a sweet person, a a genuinely nice person. And this guy's humanity radiates over your basic uh, video call. And uh, really uh, enjoyed talking with him. And I uh, want to thank our friend Emiliano Caballero from uh, Leapwing Audio for making the introduction. Uh, we had a great conversation, and I look forward to bringing that to you. So, Rafa Sardina coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's just talk about some random thoughts I have for you. Coffee first, of course. Mmm, boy, that lifts my spirits right there. So it's um, it's Sunday morning-ish, yeah, still morning, as I record this, and uh, it's pouring rain up here in Northern California, at least where I'm at. So, you know, thank goodness we don't have to worry about any fires. That's one less thing to worry about. Trying to stay positive, trying to stay focused, and uh, I know that it's a challenge. It's it's. A bit of a challenge for me, but uh, you know, I think the key that is helping me, and I and I hope it helps you. I've I brought it up in past monologues over the last few weeks, is that uh, staying on a schedule is super key. There's like some I don't know, maybe it's common sense stuff, maybe it's not, but uh, getting to bed early, getting up early, and having a list of things that you got to get done for the day, and plotting everything out as best you can. That discipline, that sense of structure almost frees you from the monotony of potentially being bored at home. And, you know, believe me, I have not always gotten a good night's sleep. I've stayed up late, fallen asleep on the couch, watching God knows what on Netflix. I actually watched Dirty Harry the other day, which was fascinating to see San Francisco in that time period, late 70s, early 80s. But yeah, try not to do that. Try not to stay up late, watching Netflix, go to bed, get a good night's sleep. Keep yourself healthy. It's super important during this time period to implement these things because this is the new norm for the foreseeable future. And we don't know when this is all going to come to an end. So let's make the best of it. Stay on that schedule. Keep yourself healthy. Eat well. uh, Try to strategize your meals if you can because you don't want to eat too much takeout and spend all your money, you know, as far as uh, going out, you know, I'm not the expert at all. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I tend to listen to Dr. Fauci and uh, what he has to say about things and everybody else, mm, yeah, not so much. So keep yourself safe on a schedule, healthy, et cetera, et cetera. Let's have some more coffee. So on the audio front, I'm happy to report I had a great Remote mixing session the other day. I'm mixing this big band record with uh, the Kyle Athade dance party. And um, those of you listening who happen to know Kyle's father Bob Athade, Bob Athade is a is a band director in Northern California who is uh, well loved and just one of the most passionate band directors you will ever meet. And his son Kyle is just sickly talented, and I love working with him. He's in LA at this moment, so we did a remote mixing session because we have this record to mix and we kind of need to interact in a real-time basis. So here's what we did: I got I got a, uh, one of my laptops up and had Kyle on FaceTime on that, and I was wearing some wired Apple earbuds to communicate. We had Zoom to do a screen share of Pro Tools so they could see, you know, the movements I'm making and. It just adds to the to the visual element of the whole thing for communication. And then I was streaming the mix with with the Audio Movers plugin, and we were fluctuating between 0.1 and 0.5 seconds of latency, and it worked out fantastic. And that was with not so great internet on Kyle's side. Kyle was at uh, his lead trumpet player's house, and the internet was a little shaky, but it still worked. It worked great, and. We're getting through some songs that are tend to be on the long side tend to be on the complex side and we're able to go in and balance one section to another and, it, and it's working great we did it a couple days in a row we're going to do it uh, a few more days this next week and i'm really looking forward to that so if you are trying to work remotely i highly suggest that uh, check out the audio movers plug using you know whether it's google hangouts or zoom you could do the screen share thing And then, you know, FaceTime or the telephone or whatever, that allows great communication. And at first I was a little skeptical, but after we got going and we were getting some mixes under our belt and calling them done... That's when I, I felt like, all right, this is working. We can do this. Now, obviously, recording is gonna be a little bit different scenario for you. I haven't completely vetted all the ways that that can be done. I'm told that there are, of course, ways of using the old uh, software Source Connect. That has its pros and its cons. I think audio movers can do something similar. There's various ways of, of accomplishing that, but Yeah, mixing, this can be done for sure. And I know that it's been done in the past on a much larger level with other people, but the fact that we were forced to do it this way really uh, educated me about the whole process. So check that out. I'll put a link in the show notes uh, to Source Connect and Audio Movers. You know where to find Zoom and FaceTime and all that business, so you don't need a link for that. Just want to reiterate also, the uh, the concept of just reaching out to people, putting together uh, video calls with people, uh, checking in on those that maybe you're living alone. I know if you've got elderly parents, I'm sure you've checked in on them, but reach out to those that are out there and uh, check in on them. Make sure that uh, from a mental health perspective, from a social per- perspective, uh, there's a, a million different reasons to just call somebody up and have a have a conversation about anything really. That's it. I hope you all are safe and healthy. And uh, like I said, please, try to get yourself on a schedule. If you're not, get some good sleep. Be well and stay positive, my friends. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, They've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this without a doubt. It's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You (laughs) might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get to it. Rafa Sardina here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Rafa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to meet you. We have some mutual friends and those mutual friends sing your praises. And I'm really uh, excited to talk to you today.
0: Let's just start with Where did you grow up? I'm originally from Spain, from what's called the Basque Country, the northern side of the country, very close to France. I grew up in a little fisherman's town, 15,000 people, really, really small town. And yeah, that was really my upbringing, you know, in this this little town, till I was 16 years old. That's when I actually moved to San Diego, where my parents moved.
1: Coming to San Diego was driven by your parents moving from Spain, Before you left, was there anything that inspired you for music or recording at an early age before coming to the United States?
0: Since I was a little kid, actually, since I was like maybe seven years old, I always dream about being a professional musician. You know, being an artist, being a professional musician. I actually would tell my mom since an an early age that, yeah, I I was going to make it, you know, as an artist. That was it. That was my call. (laughs) And I play guitar. That was my main instrument. Yeah, I was truly, truly convinced, you know, that was my path. The thing is that along the way, I was very lucky because I was surrounded by people that they had the same kind of perspective about music as me. my cousin, he's a professional drummer now, you know, an amazing, amazing drummer. We used to listen to music together all the time, have like groups of people work together with creating music, doing things. So from an Early, early age, you know, I was very, very involved with music. I was part of a pirate radio that we opened when we were only like 14 years old. <laughs> it was called Ichuki Irratiada. I still remember the name. We were shut down quite a few times. So, yeah, we were actually very adventurous. It was the small town kind of environment, but we were thinking like really, really big. We would go to any. Concerts we will hear of, we'll just travel together to whichever city we needed to go to see these concerts. And then I was part of several bands. And when I was just 15, I had my first studio recording experience. And we recorded a full album. I wasn't officially in the band. I was friends with them. It wasn't really my band that actually recorded the album. It was my cousin's band Mm -hmm. that recorded the album. But I was there, yeah, for the whole week learning from the whole experience. That's what basically what ignited my big interest in audio and production. I bet that had a huge impact on you to see that for the first time, the excitement of, wow, this is, this is a possibility for me. Yes, exactly. Because up to that point, I was only thinking about music, just the music side of things. I wasn't thinking about the production side of things. And it really opened a, a window for me. It really did. So fast forward
1: to moving to San Diego, that must have been a shock to go from this small town to San Diego, or did you have such a sense of adventure that you were open to it?
0: I was very open to it. And also, when I grew up in northern Spain, I lived very close to a big city called Bilbao. And Bilbao was a very international city because it's a city that was based on business, banking, those kind of things. So we had a lot of interaction with the outside world mm. through the big city. And especially, you know, a huge, huge contact with London. There has been a ferry, non-stop ferry, for the past 250 years from Bilbao to London. It's still operational. There are two ferries a week. So we were actually exposed to the outside world. We really were. But obviously, coming to America, it was very, very different lifestyle. That's what was really shocking, you know, the lifestyle in terms of how people live. It's not like if I had landed in New York, New York would have been like more in line with my lifestyle in Bilbao. Like a big city where people walk in the streets, you meet people in the streets, you can go anywhere for a drink or a coffee. Landing in California was very different because everything is so spaced out. People don't necessarily see each other you have to plan things out in order <laughs> to meet people that was a shock for me that was very very shocking for me
1: the traffic the the strip malls the 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 expanse of it all
0: exactly the expanse of it all that was the shocking aspect the shocking <laughs> element of it all yeah did you speak english in Spain, I still don't. <laughs> no, you still, you're still, you're still working on that. Huh? I'm still working on it. <laughs> yeah, that makes no, two I, of us. <laughs> <laughs> I did a little bit, but I wasn't that proficient. I had to actually work very hard for the next three months to really catch up on it. And I did speak a little bit because we studied it in school. But I was the first generation that switched into english as the second language because before my generation not even my generation before my actually before my year the year i was born everybody studied french everybody studied french as the second language not english so i was actually the first year where they implemented english instead of french huh
1: when you got to the u.s and you started to explore, what were your sources of developing your English skills?
0: Well, just hanging with people, mm. hanging with people. I was part of an international program because when I landed in San Diego State University as the ESU, I signed up for uh, some English courses, actually, some English classes, so I could get English proficiency tests, so I could get through that. Because obviously, I was only 16. I was planning on, okay, what's next? I had just finished high school in Spain when I moved. I was only 16 and I had already finished because I was always a year ahead of my class. For whatever reason, for some strange reason, when I was four years old, they actually put me in first grade. So I was the youngest always in my class. So when I moved here, I was also only 16. But I had just finished high school and I was thinking about what I was going to do with my life because music had always been a dream, but I couldn't find out what would be the process in order for me to make a living of making music. I was also very interested in science. I still am very interested in science, history, those kind of things. So I ended up signing for medical school. I actually moved back to Spain. I had a little detour. I went to Ireland for, let's say, seven months or so. I went there because I had some friends who actually offered me to stay with them for a while and get more proficient with English. So that's what I did. I went to Ireland, to County Kerry, to a little town called (laughs) Kilorgland. I still remember. (laughs) And I spent like six, seven months over there still practicing, playing. Still was my dream, a big part of my dream. But I was also very very realistic about my future in terms of, okay, do I need to have some kind of career? I didn't even know about any schooling possibilities for production. Back then, I was still exploring, okay, is there any way, is there any path to get into it other than just being a musician?
1: Were your parents pressuring you at all to just stay on the path of being in medicine?
0: Yes, a little bit. And I understand them because they were thinking, okay, if you are so good with science, you are pretty capable of doing it. Why not give it a try and and see what happens? Yeah. They never actually stopped me from my being interested in music. They never stopped that. They always mm-hmm. encouraged that. But on the other hand, they were also very realistic about, okay, but you need to have some kind of career just in case. That was the sort of like the plan B factor that everybody <laughs> talks about, right? You need to have a plan A, plan B, plan C. I'm actually quite, or at least in my career, my, my experience has been just the opposite. I always got rid of plan B, plan C, plan D. <laughs> and, and in a way, people ask me what has been the key of being successful or being, I think that was part of that persistence aspect of my path was that allowed me to be more focused. I had like the techno prisoner kind of attitude about my career, do you, do you know, about my music career, about my production career. So I simply wouldn't compromise by doing anything else. Doesn't mean I don't have other interests. And I, ha- I do have many other interests in yeah. these days. And even other businesses I'm part of that have nothing to do with audio or music. But that was my early path. What was the point
1: in which you made the switch, where you said, audio, music is going to be my path, not medicine?
0: Well, I was going through medical school. I was already finishing my third year, starting my fourth year, and I was even an intern already in in a hospital. You know, you start doing your intern rounds. And one day, I mean, it just happened. It was very sudden. I just said, if I want to be successful, in music, because I was already working in music. Every summer, I would be doing some kind of tour. I was doing work as a monitor engineer, as a front house engineer. I was doing some studio sessions. I was doing anything imaginable. I was even doing, like, boxing matches. I mean, you name it. Anything that had to do with audio, in one way or or another, I was part of. Even uh, while I was going through medical school, the parties that would be thrown in the campus... I'll be one of the guys providing the sound for it. I work with these guys who had this very small sound company and will actually provide the sound for the parties, things like that. I never stopped being very, very interested in music and very interested in the whole audio process, either being sound reinforcement or studio recording. That never stopped. And one day I just realized I'm really in love with the process. I'm really in love with audio. I'm in love with technology. I'm in love with production and I'm in love with music. I need to basically give it a, an opportunity. So I simply quit medical school. It was it was that that drastic. I remember that's when I started discovering about recording schools, about production schools, those kind of things which were actually non-existent in Spain. So, I inquired through especially mixed magazine, I will devour those magazines. you know I will just read even the fine print <laughs> of the magazines. I will pretty much know every single page of the ma- magazine. I will know it. <laughs> and what I did, I started like seeing some advertisements about production schools and music schools, so I started writing to those scores and getting more information on the programs. Back then, you had to actually write a letter. (laughs) We're talking like way back. A physical letter
1: with a stamp. A physical
0: Mm -hmm. letter, you know, with a stamp, and write them, you know, get the address, write to them, and wait till you got that response. And I got a response from most of them, and I started getting brochures and information about the different programs and how much they cost and everything. As I mentioned, you know, I was working every summer and as often as I could, you know, even while I I was in medical school. So I was saving some money, but it wasn't enough for a big program. The only thing I could afford was like a, I remember it was like a three or four week program in Ohio, in a recording school in Ohio. And I was like, well, this will have to do because this is all I can afford. So I came back to the U.S., to do that recording program. That was my first schooling on audio and production. Is that Chillicothe? Chillicothe, the recording workshop. Exactly. I've heard such amazing things about that place. Yes, and I'm going to tell you, it was quite, quite amazing. That's the first single learning experience with some kind of a structure that really, really convinced me I'm made for this. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And I remember leaving Chillicothe, Ohio, thinking, this is it. I found it. Now I can officially say I quit medical school. (laughs) (laughs) This is it. I'm not going back. (laughs) And it was a very, very quick program, obviously. There was much more to be learned. And I knew that too. I was smart enough to know that I need to learn from on-hand experience. I need to learn from even some other programs in the future if I could afford it. So I work my ass off basically for the next summer. I think I work every single day during, I don't know, four months straight. I toured northern Spain, the rest of Spain, Barcelona, Madrid, southern France. I work... It really wore my ass off trying to get enough money to have access to a longer program. But at the end of the day, when I was feeling I was ready for the next move, I didn't have enough money. My parents actually had to help me with my next move. And I know that they must have had like mixed feelings about it because this meant I was actually killing my other possibility, which was medical school, right? And I was actually doing great in medical school. I was in the top of my class and I was doing quite good. And yeah, they must have had mixed feelings about it, but they actually did help me.
1: That's amazing that you had their support and their backing because as a parent, I mean, if my kid said, I'm quitting medical school, I know I'm doing great, but I'm gonna get into recording. Obviously I'd have a different perspective than the average parent, but yes, wow, that's that's fantastic. <laughs> So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. So when was the moment that you were able to cross over into, I don't want to belittle any kind of work beforehand, but where was the first major work
0: experience
1: where you were working on a record that was going to be promoted by a label that was going to get some traction?
0: Well, it happened... After I came back to school, by the way, I went to Full Sail in Orlando and I did a program. It was like a year and a half program because I signed for the regular production program, but they also had like an extended production program that also included video. And I did both. I did both programs. I expedited the whole process because I couldn't afford to be that long in Orlando. I was like, damn, because it wasn't just the cost of... Of the studies. Back then, it wasn't as expensive as it is these days, but it was everything. It was the rental of the living expenses, everything Mm. piled up. So when I started and I finished my first three months, I asked them, How could I achieve the full, full program? How could I expedite the whole process? And I actually did by recording on video some of the classes. They allowed me to do that of the secondary program. Yeah. And I created like a library of those recordings on VHS tape, remember? (laughs) And it gave me points towards my video program too. So it was actually, they were very, very accommodating on finding ways to help me do both programs. So that's what I did. And when I left uh, Full Sail, I applied for the studios that I really believe were the top in the country. I was like, damn, I need to get... I remember Ocean Wave Recording was in the cover of Mix Magazine. And I read that interview and I was like, damn, I need to be in this place. And I also applied for the record plant, Westlake Audio, a few other places. But I flew to L.A. just for 24 hours and I did all of the interviews in a single day. And on that day, I was able to lock a position at Ocean Wave Recording. And did you were you actually interviewed by Alan, Alan Sides? I was interviewed by Jack Waltz, who used to be the general manager of the place. I'm partners with Alan Sides, but I met Alan Sites too. And it was a very odd interview because I brought all of my guns. You know, I thought like, I know so much. I have previous experience. I have actually done quite a few albums already. Not major albums, of course, very small albums compared to what they were doing, basically, mm-hmm. in their world-famous studios. But... I had experience. I even knew how to run a synclavier. I love A lot of experience in many, many different areas. I had worked as a tour manager, road manager, front house engineer, monitor engineer, as a musician, as a recording engineer. So I have done many things. But by the time the interview was over, it was very clear to me that they could care less about what they thought I knew. That was the first shock I experienced, you know, going through the interviews when Jack told me. Well, you know a couple of things, but not enough. That was basically the message that came out of the interview. He thought, not enough. Not enough because we work with such clientele that we are never going to risk having you in a room not truly knowing how proficient you are with any of it, not knowing what are your people skills. So they told me, we could never offer you an assistant engineer position. Not at all. Not even a position as a runner to tell you the truth. And that was super shocking to me. I was like, what? And he told me, just because you have enough knowledge to do other things in life, why would you want to be a runner? Collecting the trash or cleaning the bathroom or, or doing whatever you need to do as a runner. So basically he dismissed me and it was very disheartening. And I just left his office and stepped outside the office. I closed the door. And I was there for maybe 15, 20 seconds, and I knocked back in. I walked back into the office, and I told him, you know what, I don't care what you think you know about me, but I need to get this position. This has been my dream. This is it. This place, specifically, this recording studio, I heard so much about the history of the place, about the kind of clientele the studio has. I need to be here. He actually was so shocked by my attitude, that he actually offered me a job as an intern. And he said, I will make no promises because I don't know you, but I like your ways. So you are going to start as an intern. When can you start? Can you start tomorrow? He asked me. And I couldn't because I had to go back to Orlando to to get my stuff. And I was basically just finishing the last classes of the program. So I had not finished yet. I had like maybe three, four more weeks to go. So I basically told him, no, I can't, let's set up a date. And he gave me a date in the calendar. Okay, March 15th or whatever it was, you start. I was like, okay, I'll be here March 15th at the front door at 7 a.m. And yeah, that was the the beginning of my career. At Way.
1: I know that that was a long time ago, but can you recall at all what went through your head when he turned you down and you stepped out what came to mind at that moment? What caused you
0: to go back in there? Do you know, my world sank for those few minutes when it happened. And it sank because I had been preparing for it for so long. I had been preparing for it for maybe three years, thinking solely on one having this kind of opportunity one day. So this was the opportunity. This was it. And I remember my whole—somebody took— <laughs> Everything away from me for a moment. And I was like, damn, this cannot be happening. And I was very clear-minded. I thought, like, I'm not going to let this happen. This is not going to go this way. It can go down this way. And I wasn't thinking he was going to accept me or offer me a job, but I was thinking maybe he'll leave the door open for me to try again in a couple of months or something. At least he'll leave the door open uh, Mm. for uh, for another opportunity in the long run or in a few months, who knows? Who knows what? But I basically didn't accept what he was telling me. And that's why, you know, made me go back to into the office and claim it. <laughs> basically, I was just claiming it like, no, you have to give me. You don't understand. This is it. This is all I want in life.
1: What did you do with that opportunity? Once you came back from Florida and you came back to Ocean Way, How did you seize on the the opportunity there?
0: Well, the way I seized on the opportunity, basically, I thought about my job and about what—I was very, very focused. I thought about what needed to be done, like, 24-7. I was doing—I reorganized my closet at the studios, which was—I created all of the recall sheets for documentation of mix sessions and recording sessions, which is still— being used at the studios. It's part of, the, you know, Baron Rudolph has that page with all of the recalls.
1: Right. I know that. I know that site.
0: All of the ones that have a very specific aesthetic, all of those are mine. I created those when I was only 20 years old. It's hundreds of them. Hundreds of them that have like the same kind of aesthetic. And some of them even have like a fishbone. In the logo of them. That's mine. That's I, I created all of those for Austin Way.
1: And doesn't Barry still have that online? Oh that's, yeah,
0: it's still online. You can access all of those documents. Yeah.
1: Audience, I'll leave that in the show notes. There'll be a link so you can see what Rafa is talking about.
0: Yeah, so I created all of those. You know, I was I was so focused on okay, what else can be done? What else can I do to make things better at the studio? And I still did my—I was an intern, so I was put into sessions right away, but I still did my duties as a, as a runner. Hmm. I would have to do anything and everything that was required to run the place. Not just run the sessions, but run the place. And it was a big facility. It had a total of—counting, you know, record one studios, which was part of it. It was a total of at least eight studios. And at some point it expanded and it was more than eight because they opened a Scott Litt's room at what's now East West Studios, a mix room. Mm-hmm. They opened the Yamaha room. So at some point they had like up to 10 studios, operational studios. Do you remember what year, what time frame are we talking about? We're talking super early 90s, 91, 92, around those years. Doing things like organizing the mic locker. Nobody was telling you to do that, right? No. Nobody was telling me to do any of it because obviously people were focused just... If you were a runner, especially, the sole focus will be how can I get into the rooms? And they only saw like a straight path to it. Like, okay, I'm going to force my way into being into the rooms. I'm going to make friends with the assistants. I'm going to prove that I can be trustworthy or I can do this, I can do that. Obviously, you have to do all of those things, but you have to bring bigger value to your your employer, I believe. And that's the same attitude they have with my interns, with my assistants. They have to bring bigger value to the session, not just to me as a producer or or as a studio owner. They have to bring more value to the project itself. And it's a very ambiguous term. How do you measure that? But once you are running a session you know when it's being accomplished. If you know very, very easily when it's being accomplished by just being helpful in many, many different ways. Sometimes you are just being helpful but not being in the way. <laughs> as simple as that. So you learn the social aspect of making music because making music is not just about recording. It's not even just about the songs themselves. It's about the whole environment that you create in order to create like a plateau where people can be more creative or can be more emotional or less emotional, whatever is needed for the session, but you're responsible for creating that environment. And it's not just you as the producer, but it's also the engineer's tasks. and it's also the assistant's task, and it's also the studio's task. So everybody has a responsibility to fulfill. That's one of the things that I... I appreciate the most about my experience at Ocean Way. How professional the studio was about that. How Alan Sides created this philosophy of the client is always right. The client, he's there because they want a piece of you. They want to use the studio. But the moment they step into the room, they own the place in a way. They own the place. is their own environment. Nobody has any right to tell them, this can be done or this cannot be done. That was sort of like the attitude. And also another attitude that Alan Alan had was that we will never allow the client to fail. Even when clients brought not so good engineers because they, they, they wanted to use their own engineer or whatever, which was the most common thing, actually. Alan always said, move in the saddle and make sure He gets great sounds, no matter what you have to do, even if it's by setting up additional microphones and suggesting them at the right time. Oh, guess what? I also have this one and it's ready. Why don't you try it? Those kind of things Alan taught us how to work in a session, you know, how to work these ideas in a session. And we learned that by doing sessions with him also. I did quite a few sessions with Alan, with him engineering or him producing. And he was very clear-minded about that aspect.
1: I love that idea of make it so the other person succeeds, and if they succeed, you succeed. and you Absolutely. Bring, and you bring value to, to the facility.
0: And that's how music is created. I don't know any project that hasn't been a collaboration, really, Every project I have been part of you know, in my life has been a collaboration. Even when people congratulate me, oh, how you did that? I always think, no, I didn't do that. We did it. I mean, it was a group of professionals or musicians who did it. It's like when people say, oh, such a great drum sound. And I'm like, well, you have to take into account the drummer, <laughs> not just... How I capture it, I couldn't capture it this way if it wasn't for the drummer playing that way or even having the knowledge on how to work out his instrument. So there are many layers to what we do and not enough people talk about it. People think it's a very unidirectional kind of process, or it's a very unilateral kind of uh, accomplishment. And it never is. I, I think it's always a collaboration. I'm sitting here staring at an
1: incredible list of credits, and I'm thinking, there's a timeline in my head. And there's Rafa, who is just starting out at Oceanway, and then there's Rafa, who has all these credits here now, as I talk to you today, and this line between. And I'm curious about not only the path to getting to those credits, but also the mistakes and the learning that you did to get there. Can you tell me a bit about those mistakes?
0: I think that we all make mistakes and we all should make mistakes. And I think that those are the times when you actually take a leap forward, when you have made some kind of mistake that even astonishes you, right? You go like, damn, why did they do this? Do it this way. Or why did they push for this? For doing it like that, and those are the times that you learn the most. Those are the, mm. the, you know, the richest experiences in your life. Those are the only times where you can truly, as I said, you know, leap forward and move to the next level. Every time I did quote unquote a mistake, I always thought like, "Damn, this is terrible. I suck. Why did I do it this way?" <laughs> and then next thing you know is that you come out of it much stronger. I mean, you learn so, so, so much. And hopefully, you know, the mistakes are not so terrible that they ruin something. You, they usually don't don't ruin something. I don't remember experiences where I could say that I totally ruined something. It wasn't like that. It was mistakes where you think like it could have been done better. And you also learn how to fix them, which is another aspect of what we do. You learn to When you're planning for a project, you learn how to minimize the risk. Hmm. You learn about minimizing the risk. You learn about what's truly important. You learn about the spontaneity of things. You learn to record from the minute, from the second you are in a session. You learn to record every warm-up take. (laughs) Those kind of things. And those actually count as mistakes too. When you're not recording some of that, To me, these days, it qualifies as a mistake. Why weren't you recording? Or, for example, if you are part of a songwriting session and you are recording ideas, you learn to be recording 24-7. You learn to record nonstop. Even if you don't, you're not going to listen to it, but if an amazing idea comes through, you don't want to miss it. You don't want to have to tell somebody, well, it didn't get recorded. Do you remember how how it was. And and it does happen all the time. So those are the things that you learn along the way. About a year
1: and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you say, Send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. You know, the, the technical side of, of recording is one aspect, but the two other aspects that I think some people overlook over the course of their career is the business and the people skills. Could you talk first off about the people skills and what you've learned along the way to get this incredible list of of credits to your name.
0: I think that the people skills are attached to another element, which is empathy. I think that you have to be very empathetic with the people you work with, and not just the artist. You have to be empathetic with the manager, with the record label, with the arranger, with the composer, (laughs) with the musicians. Even with the studio, even if you are the client, you have to be very empathetic with every single element of a production. And you can only understand them and better things off by being empathetic. If you are dismissive or if you only have your very specific plan in your head, you're going to miss the target because you're going to miss a lot of small opportunities that are going to come along the way. Mm. You're not going to truly understand your artist 100% if you are not empathetic, if you don't get into their heads. I always put myself in their position. How would I be feeling right now if I was him? I'm exposing myself in front of this group of people in the studio. I'm in front of this microphone or I'm in front, or even if I'm on this drum set and we have a task to do and you're looking for this magic for something exceptional, not just something good. You are looking for something truly exceptional, something else. What kind of mindset does everybody need to have in order to accomplish that? And it's not just you as the producer or the engineer, but you have to understand them to create the right environment so they can be protected too. Or sometimes being protected doesn't mean that I'm going to try to make things easier for them. Being protected in terms of the art of what they need to create, maybe being protective with them means challenging them. You are protecting the art. You're protecting the ultimate goal of what you're doing. So I really believe you have to be very, very empathetic. You need to know what they're going through. There are times when you work with an artist and from the second step in the studio, you know they are not ready. You know it's not going to happen or it shouldn't happen. Maybe they even want to try, but maybe it's not the right time. You need to know those kind of things. So that's the main aspect in terms of people skills. Then knowing this, this knowing about this empathy that you need to be aware of, you use your people skills trying to even divert things, <laughs> trying to to make things seem easier than they really are. Yeah. Even creating that sensation of easiness, it's a great great asset that you can bring to the to the project, even if it's the most awfully difficult situation and experience for everybody if you joke about it and you make it look like it's no big deal you're already affecting their own perception of the process and they actually enjoy enjoy it no matter how hard it is people start enjoying it those are the kind of people skills you need to have and what i'm saying is that it starts with empathy you need to know where everybody's at you need to understand what's going on. You can get the technical under control. You Mm -hmm. put on your best face
1: when it comes to having good people skills, but understanding the business and figuring out how to maintain it for the long term is just, it's a challenge for a lot of people. What what have you done to figure that out along the way to make sure that you protect yourself and your career for the long term? I think that there are two sides to the business.
0: The side that has to do with understanding the business in general, how the business for, not for yourself, for the people you are working with, you need to understand what their business is. You need to understand how much they are risking with this investment. Mm. They call you to work on a project and you have to be aware that they are actually investing on something. They are risking their own money on something and you are part of it, you are part of the process. And then there is your side of business where you protect yourself. There's the side where you have to think, okay, I should be making this match for this project, or I should be making points for this kind of collaboration in the project. Or if they ask me to engineer but not produce, but I became the producer, I have to fight for my rights. I have to make everybody aware of where I stand with this. I'm not officially the producer, but non-officially I'm producing the shit. (laughs) So... (laughs) Right. We need, we, we need to come to some kind of agreement in terms of points, compensation, even if it's in the back end. But you need to figure those things out. And you have to do it in a non-confrontational way. You have to do it sometimes in an educational kind of way. There are some people that you have to basically educate and show them what's really happening. Because just by having their manager saying like, oh, no, no, you you guys, the band, is, you are the producers. They state that as a fact very often. And they just come back to you. It just happened to me very recently. And somebody told me, well, they asked me to do a, a lot of things that had nothing to do with engineering the project. And I agreed to just engineer the project. And. I ended up basically producing and I made them aware of you are actually the kind of tasks that I'm doing at this point have little to do with just engineering. I mean, it has to do more with the whole direction of the project, even repertoire. I mean, so many things, right? Even helping them co-write the songs and so many other things. And I made them aware of it. And they basically came back to me just saying like, oh, but our manager told us that you are just the engineer. <laughs> and, and it was so naive the way they expressed it. But I really understood that they were just following the guidelines being provided by the manager. And they were actually pretty naive. They didn't have enough experience to know what's what. So I had to explain it to them. I have to tell them straight, you know, give it straight to them. I'm afraid this is not just engineer. No, if I were to be engineer, I would just be doing this kind of thing. Obviously, I would help in any way possible with everything else. That's why you do as an engineer. You help with everything and anything. <laughs> but that's not the task. You're asking me to do not just today, but this is the prospect for the rest of the project. This is what's going to be happening for the next two months if we continue working. So no, that's not what I'm being paid to do. So you have to be very clear about those aspects. You have to be smart about how you tell them, but you have to do it.
1: Do you think that as we go along in the music industry and we have a new crop of artists coming in and a new crop of managers who aren't schooled in the record industry of the olden days, are you having to educate
0: people more and more as time goes along? Yes, yes, we do. And I think I think it is our responsibility to do so. I know some professionals who are just tired and don't care to educate anymore. And I think it's a mistake not to do it. I think that we should always do it. Sometimes your client doesn't want to hear it, but that's when you choose not to work with somebody anymore, right? To me, it's very, very, very clear what the value is of every single aspect of what we do, where value holds, right? It's very clear that if I'm going to be choosing the songs with the artist, if I'm going to be helping them co-write some songs, if I'm going to be working on the arrangements, or I'm going to be working on even orchestrations, if it's, you know, an orchestral project. Here's another element. If you are basically going to be comping, Every single take, every single performance, every single, everything of the project. And there is no other producer in sight and nobody else is going to do it. It's pretty clear to me that you are co-producing in some kind of manner. You are co-producing the project. When every single responsibility falls on you, you're basically producing. Hmm. And I know that some people don't see it that way because they're used to aggressively forcing engineers to just do things. Do the project for me. Finish that for me. (laughs) But that's not the engineer's task. And somewhere along the way, people started accepting things. And here's another aspect, not charging for specific things, right? Mm. If you tell me I'm going to be comping or going through this number of takes and musically compiling the ideas, doing those kind of things that have nothing to do with something technical... It's not about the technical aspect of it. It's about the musical aspect of it. It's about the production aspect of it. When we switch the task to that kind of, to that line of work, you are basically producing in some form or or manner. So you should also be compensated for it. So you should voice it out and tell them, well, guys, this is not just engineering. You cannot just pay me by the hour or by the day to do this kind of stuff. It doesn't have the same kind of value. It doesn't hold the same kind of value. This is worth much more than just having a super low-skilled person or a person with low knowledge of production just doing edits. It's not just editing. And people try to disguise it as editing. Oh, he's just editing. No, dude, when you are giving the project to somebody and he's doing everything everything imaginable to it. Musically speaking, he's not just editing. <laughs> you're making musical decisions that affect the project. Exactly. Every few seconds you're making a musical decision. And somebody else should be there with you. If somebody else is there with you and they just need you as an operator, I will basically lower my guard and say like, okay, somebody is acting responsibly about it. And somebody's actually making the calls. Okay, let's use that or let's not use the use this. But it is very different when they just throw the project on your lap and you have to do everything.
1: I want to shift gears for a bit. I want to ask you about your routines. When you wake in the morning, are there any daily routines that you have for yourself to keep yourself motivated or focused? Or some people meditate, some people smoke pot, some people run a million miles. Mm -hmm. What are your routines?
0: When I get into the studio, I like to basically play music i like to listen to music even if it's not my music and mm. and usually it's not even music i work on or or music you know that's related to my project it could be actually very very different kind of music but i like to play some music i like to get in the mood i like to get excited about things
1: mm.
0: not necessarily about about the project in tasks you know what i'm going to be doing that specific day also i like to switch gears too i have no problem starting the day with a project and then switching gears into a different project or opening another song from a different project and start like comping vocals or figuring something else out or figuring out the rhythm track and then stopping that and switching back to another mix. I like to keep it fresh for myself, Mm. for the sake of, of my own sanity, right? I like to to just do different things in a day. Or sometimes just the opposite. Sometimes I just work on a song exclusively and that's it. I take it easy and I just meditate on that song and I really, you know, go deep in a different kind of way with that song. So it varies a lot. And unless there is like a super, super hard deadline where I need to focus solely on a son or a project, I like to mix it up. And your
1: studio now, after hours, is located at your home. Is that correct? Yes, yes, correct. Is that in the same building as the house, or is that a separate building?
0: It's part of the structure, but it's it's sort of like a separate part of the property. So with separate access, it's on, you know, full office, bathroom, lounge, and so on. So I keep it separate from the house. So I can actually accommodate clients here. And not only that, I can also isolate myself from the daily routines or being at home. So I basically go to work. <laughs> yeah. I can feel like I, I go to work, yeah. You, you have a family, right? Yes, I do, yeah. How many
1: kids do you have?
0: One. One kid, yeah. Okay. One son.
1: How have you dealt with work-life balance over the years in making sure that the family stays happy and the
0: artist stays happy? Having the studio at home has actually helped. It can be a catch-22 if you don't have discipline and you don't have a routine. You don't create some kind of routine in terms of how long you work or knowing when to stop or, you know, those kind of things. Yeah. But it has actually really, really helped. When I built the studio, it has been 16 years now since I had this studio at my house. But on my previous house, I had another studio for another four years, another home studio. And it was at the time when things were changing Pro Tools had basically taken over completely, almost completely. We're talking 20 years ago, so we're talking about 2000s. It was around 2000, 2001. And I had my own rig for years, but it was basically just a Pro Tools rig, a few preamps, a few preamps and EQs, things like that. But then I could see how things were changing, how clients were trying to save money but by not locking the big studio, which meant that if they didn't log the big studio, they wouldn't necessarily hire you as an engineer because you needed the studio as your platform to work, right? So if you didn't have your own rig or your own studio, you're basically out of work for some small parts of projects. Back then it was just, it just started happening. It wasn't like the full project was gonna be done in a home studio, even though some were, but that wasn't like the normal. Now it is the normal, but back then it wasn't the normal. And I remember, I thought like, damn, I need to be part of this game. And I was starting to work also on some smaller movies, projects that require you to have your own rig or your own studios. Or I would record like, for example, I remember I started doing a lot of the early documentaries for HBO. Hmm. And I did the Jodi Maggio documentary and I did a bunch of those documentaries. and. For many of those, the composer had his home studio, so I had to record some of the stuff at his home studio, but he didn't have any good microphones. So I had to bring my own microphones, maybe a couple of microphones, and then if any more editing needed to be done, I had to do it myself. So I need to have my own Pro Tools rig, and then it escalated from that. It really started escalating. So the following year, more tasks were happening Outside of the walls of the biggest studios, and that's when I realized, well, wouldn't it be cool if I had my own creative space? If I had my own walls, right? If I had my own ISO booth where I could actually track a vocal, or track an acoustic guitar, or a trombone, whatever, whatever was needed. So I started investing on on it, on the you know having a home studio, on having the machines, having the gear. Those kind of things.
1: And when you built it, did you did you hire somebody to draw plans and do? No, the first
0: studio I had, I did it myself. <laughs> ah. yeah, I did it myself with some friends, and I just figured out non-parallel walls. Like, I mean, very very basic. It was very truly basic. But it's funny that you mentioned that because it was very very basic. But I did so many projects in that home studio. It's just crazy really 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 crazy. I did some uh, some of the biggest projects I've been part of. I did in that home studio. Even track some of the stuff in that studio. So a lot can be done in any space really in reality. It's it's more about your imagination and how to overcome problems more than anything else.
1: And not necessarily on obsessing about double wall construction and
0: on my follow up studio I did it because I I wanted to be 100% sure that it will work because I was going to invest some money on it, Structural, structurally speaking. I had to build a lot more. So on the previous one, I was using an existing structure. On this one, I needed to isolate it from the rest of the house. I need to do many other things that forced me to spend a lot of money. So as I was doing that, I also invested on some consulting, right? Into mm. Some acoustical, you know, and structural engineering, those kind of things. So I did it, let's say, more like the proper way, but it's not really necessary in most cases. It really isn't.
1: And do you have the ability to track drums there? Oh, all the time.
0: Oh, yeah. I just did, yeah. I mean, every single drummer in town has tracked here <laughs> mm. over the past 16 years. Yeah, I've done so many projects. Not that I necessarily want to do it all here, No, not at all, because depending on the project, I'm looking for some specific type of acoustics, right? Mm. So I use other studios all the time, and I love to do that. I love to use other acoustical spaces and other mic collections, you know, and I, I like to be more adventurous about recording and trying things.
1: You know, looking at this list of people, I mean, we're talking about Tim McGraw, Lady Gaga, Michael Jackson, let's just say the list is impressive. What have you learned about working with people like this, like Lady Gaga, at when you're at that high level? Is it just simple human interaction, treating people how you want to be treated, or is there something extra
0: that we're not aware of? I think it is both things. It's about treating people the way in a special kind of way so they feel they feel you are contributing to the process. Even In a human level, you're contributing in a way so that they're in a better place to create better music. That's one aspect. But then, professionally, other than that, other than the human aspect, you also have to give them something extra, something special that they feel they cannot get anywhere else, right? The way you are able to spot a good take or a good line or this or that, having that agility... In the studio, I think it's very, very important. And if you know this, usually it has nothing to do with the technical aspect. It has to do with the musical aspect of things. It has to do with you surprising them, knowing about things that they were not able to even catch on the fly during mm-hmm. a session. But you were. You know that that line could be amazing or that that could lead into a different you know, even, even spotting happy mistakes and being able to, to write them down and remember, wow, what you did there, what if that could, could become a bridge of the song or, or an interlude going into, and it was a mistake, but it leads into a new idea or into a new opportunity for the artist and for the song. Those are the things that artists truly value. You've been an accomplice <laughs> to 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 what's what's been made in the studio, you know. Being an accomplice to the whole process and seeing opportunity even in the mistakes. Exactly, most of the opportunities are actually in the mistakes, because everything else is predictable. Mm-hmm. It doesn't actually open a window to anything bigger. It's not like you're changing their lives by better enough just that tiny little bit, right? You can change somebody's perspective by actually being able to grasp a new idea, or being able to grasp one of these opportunities that come from a from a mistake.
1: Well, this has been fantastic, Rafa. Before we go, I have to give thanks to our mutual friend Emiliano Caballero from Leapwing Audio for introducing us. He was the first person to say, "Oh, you don't know Rafa." you got to talk to him. <laughs> and uh, I'm really, really glad that we could make this happen today. I know that we're both kind of stuck in our homes <laughs> during the <Yes>. shelter-in-place <laughs> situation, which is bizarre. But yeah, it was a, such a pleasure to speak with you. Great insight and great things to, to take away. An audience, you might do yourself a favor and head on over to rafasardina.com, which I will put a link in the show notes so you can see more information on Rafa. Thank you so much. No, thank you
0: so much, guys. Thank you for sharing.
1: Okay, well, you take care. You too. Our friends over at Kali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for here on the Working Class Audio podcast. I hope you enjoyed that. And thank you so much for being here with me today to listen. I want to thank everybody that helped out with the show. That, of course, includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdell with the Working Class Audio theme song, and that magic voice of Mr. Chuck Smith. Just want to say that I hope you and your family and everyone close to you is safe and healthy and adapting to the strange new norms that we have in this current state of this virus and want to thank you again for coming here. I really appreciate it. As usual, spread the word, tell all your friends and until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware working class audio sponsors, the forum over at gearspace.com called audio life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to Gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.